Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Coaching Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. I'm Adam and in this series I'll be speaking to inspirational people who have made a change in their lives in order to make a difference. A difference for themselves, for others and for the world at large. Expect real stories, insights and wisdom from coaches and non-coaches alike. This is the Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. Today I'm joined by someone who is a personal inspiration to me. She's a coach and consultant whose work sees her championing the needs of diverse communities all around the world. In May 2013, she made history by becoming the first black woman to be appointed as Deputy Lieutenant for Nottinghamshire. She then went on to be appointed and approved by Her Late Majesty the Queen as an RAF Honorary Air Commodore. She's a council member for the RSPB, a national ambassador for the Woodland Trust, and a patron for many other organisations and charities. Next year, she will make history once again as the first black woman to be appointed High Sheriff of Nottinghamshire. I'm pleased to call her my friend. A very warm welcome to Veronica Pickering. Hello. Hello. Hello, lovely. I mean, (laughs) do you ever just stop and think, hang on a minute, is this... Is this me they're talking about? Is this my life? No, I I honestly think it's somebody else's life because you can't really put yourself in that position. You you know, you've got things to do. I've got things to do. I just need to focus on the here and now, usually on the here and now and what I'm doing next. And if other things creep in, they creep in, right? Some good, some not so good. It's just the way I do it. That's how I roll, as I say. Mm, I get that. (laughs) What a nice way to live. (laughs) I hope so. So normally when I have these conversations, I like to take people back to the beginning. Okay. Generally, that's the beginning of their experience of coaching. With you, though, I'm going to go right back to the beginning. Oh, serious. (laughs) (laughs) Serious, yes. Um, So you were born in Kenya. I was. A country that I know is still dear to your heart. You moved to the UK in the 60s, having to get to grips with a country, a culture and a language that were completely new to you. What were your memories of that time of your life? Coming to England was a shock. It was a shock, but a little bit exciting to begin with because you're on an aeroplane, right? And then you end up coming out of this aeroplane in the middle of December, as we did. Oh, gosh, okay. And it was covered in snow, the land, everything I could see was white. I'd never seen snow. So I was kind of like, ooh, well, I don't know what this is, but I'm freezing. And I remember then a stewardess wrapping me up in a blanket because I had some addresses, I had some shoes on, right? Nothing. <laughs> everything about me said Kenya and summer. Not prepared for the British Not prepared weather. whatsoever. And I don't know why my parents didn't think about it, but they just... I think probably thought that's what was going to happen. We'd get a coat on or something. But I just remember being wrapped up. Um, a bit of me thinking, negligent parents, let me <laughs> let me have a plane looking like this. But actually, it was amazing. And the first few years were great. But the early start was tricky. Definitely tricky. Going to school was tricky. I didn't, obviously, I didn't know what to expect, how to fit in. The other kids were awkward and tricky as far as I was concerned. Maybe I was too, because I was like, you know, I don't like it here. I want to go back. And I struggled, I think, in the first 18 months, two years, you know, not really, not knowing the rules, I guess, Mm. of how to engage with these people, what they expected, what the kids expected of me. And I think I stood and barely spoke for the first year. I grunted, I would gesticulate. I remember it as if I was locked in my own head, observing the world around me. And an observer, I stayed for the rest of my life. And I guess, yeah, just the whole shift was tricky and culturally tricky. You know, we were the only black family 
in the school and on the in the street there was nobody nobody looked that looked like me or my sister so it always felt like we had to be aware of the world around us because mm. we were different so you know everybody else as far as Abkhazan was different but they thought we were different as well so blending in I think I always thought of it as how on earth am I going to blend in and not be noticeable <laughs> didn't quite work out like that did it <laughs> <laughs> So maybe my battle, of course, has always been that. And I've said this before where I've thought, how am I going to just hide? I just want to hide today, you know. And of course, I could never hide. Everybody noticed me and everybody said something. I've got comments from people, sometimes not so pleasant, as you can imagine. So, yeah, dealing with racial abuse was kind of commonplace for me at that time. Yeah, tricky. That's that's my description of the early years. I think, yeah, I'd say it wasn't great and I didn't enjoy probably over 50% of it until I was an adult. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one. I, I, it's an interesting one to ask, actually, when you ask somebody that question. I realise we've started with quite a big question. Aye, we certainly have. But the thing that occurs to me is those skills and experiences that you had, how they have served you, how you've used those to your oh. advantage in the work that you do today and with all the people and organisations that you support you talked about yourself as being an observer yeah and you know what I really think that my childhood and my early experiences prepared me for life in so many ways and definitely prepared me for my work that I do today definitely prepared me in being able to be an assessor of situations and people and looking for good people that was mm. always my mission you know who's good who's bad who do you who do you kind of you know hang out with who can you trust and it was that that sort of drove my early early days and and looking at people and listening to them you soon find out right <laughs> which is what I've done and I think I've had a long career that's what I think <laughs> I started when I was seven years old observing people walking past and waiting for somebody to greet me and say hello and practicing my English in that way and then mm. Those who said something back, I thought, oh, they're nice. They're good people. And they would often then return on the way back from work and I would try it again. You're like, good morning. Or obviously after work, it would be good evening after, this is the rule, of course, good morning, good afternoon, good evening after six o'clock <laughs> and good night, right? So I'd practice that. Going back to where it all started then, do you remember what you wanted to be when you were younger? Oh, I think I wanted to be so many different things at different ages. When I was younger, I, I thought traveling was the best thing ever. So a job that meant I could be on a plane. <laughs> and I, at one point, I remember when I was about 12 years of age thinking, I could be an aerostess because they look great and they're beautiful. And I thought I was actually, weirdly, I thought I was really beautiful. And, and honestly, because I think I, this comes in with, like I was saying, about defending yourself and protecting yourself as a kid. When somebody says, oh, you're horrible, or you're this, and something negative, yeah. I would turn that around, actually. No, I know I'm not, right? Because I knew I wasn't. So I thought, well, I could be an aerostess, which meant I could travel and I could see the world. Maybe I could get back to Kenya. And I think that was in my head as well, right? But all the time I'm doing this fantasy sort of journey, I started helping lots of other people at school because I honestly thought the world outside was much more in need than I was. So I started helping other people. And I started helping elderly people in my spare time and I would go and deliver free school dinners. And at the weekends, there was a group, because I was part of a little group of sort of church-going teenagers. We had, we had youth groups and we had Methodist sports groups and then we had nursing cadets on a Sunday so I thought oh I'll do that that's good because that's like helping people 
So we do all this charitable work at weekends or in the, in our lunchtime. At the same time, I'm thinking I'd like to help people. At the same time, I'd like to be on a plane flying around the world. Mm. So I've got, and that probably has never left me because a bit of me does a bit of both, right? And this is exactly it's the point I'm it? just about to make. Yeah, that that, yeah. that parallel to the life that you find yourself living now. Yeah. Of supporting people, supporting communities, travelling. I want to go back to something you said Ooh. a little while ago. And that was that sense I got from listening to you that there was a self-belief mm. in you. That actually when you were confronted with people who didn't treat you kindly, rather than you seeing that as a reflection of yourself, yeah. you were very clear that actually that was about them, not you. Yeah. Where do you think that self-assurance at such a young age came from? I don't know. I, I'm going to say this is a bit about my grandmother. Mm. A very containing, supportive, structured environment that she provided. And the sense that you could be almost anything you wanted to be in the world that she lived in. Plus, you know what? She did almost the stuff that I do now. And I don't know whether I really ever think about that until this question has risen today. Because what she has always done and did rather, because she obviously died a few years back, but she always looked after everybody. She was a village elder. People came to her for advice. I saw people, women in particular, gathering around her. And... I think I've absorbed some of that, you know, and plus my aunties were fairly strong women, to be honest, you know, quite <laughs> seriously. Um, yeah, you don't mess with my aunties. <laughs> you were surrounded by yeah. women who modelled those behaviours. Yeah, definitely. Um, what was your grandmother's name? Christina. Christina. And one of my aunties was a, a union leader for one of the big mining companies in Kenya. Another one was the wife of the chief of police for the president, and she thought she was special because of him, of course. You know, and you know, and then my grandmother herself was quite a character. So mm. I don't think it's something that I kind of dissected really, to be honest. I think it's something that I've just grown up with at that time. Just but when you. you get to seven and then it's kind of cut off, I missed it. I really missed it. I missed that support. And it was difficult then because my mum had her own difficulties as a child. So I ended up looking after her quite a lot. And as I, I think you and I have had this conversation about, she couldn't read or write. And so I then started looking after her in, in lots of other ways as mm -hmm. well. And when my parents divorced, she was alone, single parent, on very low income. So you kind of absorb, okay, this is not a good place to be. We need to do something. We need to do better. And we need to get things in a, in a good place so that we can feel better. Because externally, there's negative images and sounds and the world outside not feeling great as, as a, a young black woman or a teenager and then coming home and feeling things aren't great either mm. in, in those two spaces and for me that was this is intolerable this can't stay as it is something mm. has to change where did you find your comfort then during those times where mm. for reasons you shared you weren't i'm making assumption you weren't able to get that from no. your caregiver where did you find it sport and being busy and that hasn't changed either. I was just going to say. <laughs> Sport, I think, because it was therapeutic as well. You know, I was around people who could do the things I wanted to do that physically made me feel good, mental health-wise made me feel good. If I think back to all those days, I was pretty determined, actually, as a young woman. Because if I wasn't, then I'd, gosh, I don't know what would have happened. I really don't. It would have been difficult. This is a beautiful lead into my next question, which is how do you think 
those early life experiences you had shaped the work that you do now, particularly in the coaching and diversity, equity and inclusion mm. space? I think it's been a journey into coaching. It's been a journey into my identity, a journey into the work and roles that I've had before coaching, particularly, that then led into coaching. I think the level of resilience that I've managed to build up and pile up, <laughs> which I still need to sort of, you know, use, I'm still using every day. I think there's more to do, frankly. But anyway, I think all of those things have, have led to me feeling that I can use the ability to, to sort of stay in a situation that isn't great and work a way out of it. And I've brought that into my work as a coach, definitely. My ways of trying to strategize my way out of problems and help other people to do that hugely influences my coaching and setting times and timescales for myself to do things mm. and knowing that there is an end and there is a solution. Definitely. I always think there's a solution, right? Um, and I've lived through that myself and, and I've lived through other people's lives with them and their journeys through solving their own difficulties and supporting them to do that. So I can't separate my early life experiences from my work and I, don't, I wouldn't want to. There's a quote that's on your website that I think just beautifully links to what you said. These are your own words. I work with people and organisations that feel as though they don't have an answer. My job is to help them untangle and find the courage to reach a solution that is their own. Wow, I've just said that. <laughs> I didn't realise I'd said that. <laughs> I live and breathe what I think and quote as well, definitely. You do? I do, I do, honestly. Um, I, I, I just can't see the way that I could do my work any differently. I think everything I do is, is really about reaching out, identifying something that needs to be sorted in some, in some simple way sometimes. And I'm going to tell you a little story. Let me direct to you somewhere else. I was in East London just this week and I came out of my little place that I was staying in towards the tube and there was a woman walking up the hill with a pushchair full of shopping from Asda, which was the nearest supermarket, and this, it was completely full. She had a two- to three-year-old boy screaming on the street next to her. She pulled this poor child up the road and she was screaming at him to stop crying while she was pulling him up the road. And I was so worried about this woman and I... I looked at her, everybody was avoiding her because she was in a terrible state. She was so stressed. Up the hill we climbed and I looked back, I thought, I've got to do something. This child's screaming, this mother's in a complete state. She got to the zebra crossing and she had to try and get across with the shopping and the child. And I went over to her and I said, can I help you? And she looked at me and she wasn't sure what I was going to say. And I said, look, let me help you because you're going to get across the road and you can't get there with this boy crying and you trying to push your shopping across. Can I hold his hand is what I said. So she said, yeah, fine. So I held the boy's hand and we went across the road and we stood together and I said to her, are you all right? I said, your little boy's beautiful and he's really upset. And I said, can, can I help you? And she looked at me, she didn't know what to say to me and I could see, see she didn't know. And I said, I said, who helps you? And she just burst into tears and she said, nobody helps me. Of course, I'm getting emotional now. And she looked at me eventually and I looked at her and I said, why don't we put your little boy on the front of the pushchair so he doesn't have to walk? And I said, and I think, just give him a hug. I said, just give him a hug because he loves you and you clearly love him and he looks like you love him because he's beautiful and he looks like you. And she gave him a hug and she kissed him and she calmed down. I said, just take a deep breath. I said, you'll be fine. I said, I know it's terrible having to do all of this stuff on your own as a mum. And she said, thank you. And I just looked at her and I thought, 
oh my God, I didn't know whether to cry or not myself and I really had to contain my own feelings. And I watched her walk away and off she went. But you know what, it stayed with me and I thought, oh my God, that's what I used to do a lot of when I was at work and I used to get paid to do that kind mm. of work. But intervening in somebody's life is a tricky one these days. I didn't have a contract with her to do that. I just felt like I needed to do something to do, just to just to help her in some way. I mean, a wonderful story. And for me, it just sums up everything about you and how you show up in the world to support. I just think we've all got a responsibility to play a part sometimes. And you, you'll be surprised when you're required to do that. And you'll be surprised when you have to use all your nous, all your knowledge, all your energy to do something when you least expect to expect to do it mm. and whether that's helping somebody in an accident or as I did with this little boy I was rescuing the little boy more than anybody else but mm. to do that I had to do something with her I had to work with the mother in a moment right let's talk about that then because that was your work for quite a long time in the work that you <laughs> did in social care mm. child protection mm. yes it was it was my work it was um it was great actually and it and totally accidental but Doing the work I've done with communities and families and vulnerable children here and abroad has been something that's completely consumed me. And I think because I felt like I was doing something worthwhile, felt like I was doing something really good, that I was good at doing, and I could see solutions at the end of it. I could see that I'd saved children's lives. I could see that I'd kept families together when it was necessary. I could see that there was a future where there perhaps didn't look like there was a future for a family or a child. So it was about seeing ways in which I could make a difference in a big way. And it really got under my skin for so many years until I went to work for the UN and UNICEF and worked so hard <laughs> that it practically killed me. And I came home feeling very, very ill and very sick after a few years of working out there in Africa that I got into coaching accidentally whilst out there. How did that happen? Where did your relationship with coaching You know, I'd never had any experience personally of coaching, actually formal coaching. Of course, I'd had loads of people helping me and, and no actual coaches or, I would say, formal mentors. But I had a mentor when I was a teenager and it was an accident again because he was the head teacher of a particular school and I happened to know his son, who was my boyfriend at the time. And I was probably about 16 and this guy said to me, you're, you're always looking after people, you're good at it, you know, maybe this is something you should think about. And he gave me a reference for my first job when I was 18. And I thought, ooh, this is interesting. First person ever to write something on my behalf that was positive about me. Even my Gosh. school reports weren't that positive, frankly. Wow. But anyway, it was great. And I thought, that's great. And actually... I then realised I could identify certain people, because I asked him in the end if he would write that reference, but I was then realised if I could identify somebody like him who was a head teacher mm. who could say something good about me, then I knew that actually it wasn't all about what you were, it was about sometimes who you knew, huh. right? And I had to learn that very, very early on in my life. So this head teacher gave me this positive report, and in later life I've used that as a sort of base for relationships, solving problems. Hmm. So I know that I've managed to get to know certain people in, in the work that I've done, particularly in Africa, who are big business people or big finance people or leaders of certain organisations 
because I know that they will be able to influence and impact on people's lives and solve their problems very quickly. Whereas I could spend several years trying to dig away. And actually, I realized it as well when I was working in the courts, the way I spoke to the high court judges when I was being cross-examined or gave them information about families made a big difference as to the kind of solutions and results that then were used and ended those court cases more positively. And I was pretty good at being cross-examined, so I was happy because, uh, you know, I'm a dyslexic, you know, and I'm, you know this, Adam. So you, t- you talk, yeah. you know, if you, don't, you don't write. And I was useless at writing long reams of whatever essays and reports for courts. And my colleagues would write 20, 30,000, you know, 30 word, you know, reports. And I would like, two was like enormous for me. Right. Two pages was just uh, so tricky in the days before technology. So I used all my skills and you used your words to be a skilled influencer. my words, absolutely. My voice has always been an additional strength, and I know that. So I've always thought, hmm, okay, I can use my voice, I can use the physical presence I have, I can use my smile, I can use my knowledge and skills around young people, all sorts of things. There's a young person which I kind of didn't really think about until I started working, different ways of communicating, different ways of being seen, really, mm not just the fact that everybody would kind of really almost abuse me as a kid for being a black a black woman, a black young woman. And then suddenly I thought, no, there's all these other things I'm also good at. Let me push that. And I tried because I wasn't good at school. You know, I left school with one O level. So I thought, well, what else have I got? <laughs> you know, and so I did. I went back to college, of course, and got my various other O levels and eventually got an A level. I thought, my God, how am I going to survive with just, the basics. I thought that was basic then, right? And I wasn't satisfied. And that's another trait that runs through, not being satisfied. And it just, I mean, it just astounds me. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I know I've gone off on various tangents. I mean, look, it's all wonderful. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you just sharing that about your experience of going back to school to get your O-levels, to get your A-level. If we then look at that in comparison to the fact that this year you were made an honorary professor of Lincoln Business <laughs> Who'd School. Who'd have thought it, eh? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Of resilience, no doubt. Of resilience. Now, I can accept that one, right? That's a resilience good one. Resilience and inclusion. Absolutely. Resilience and inclusion. And I, th- I think the the idea of resilience and, and the journey, I guess, the resilience in terms of testing that for myself personally is, is yeah. something I can own and be very proud of. And I guess the inclusion element, which is really around diversity, is something that's always been part of what I've thought, always, mm-hmm. never not. Uh, I've not, you know, ever separated the fact that we have to talk about diversity and difference because it's such a big deal for me that I've brought it to almost everything I've done. And never really thought I could make a living out of it until the last few years. And it's suddenly become something I, I do make a living out of and talk about. And it's, it's amazing, really. But it's so necessary and so important. And boy, there's still a lot to say and there do. There is indeed. And thankfully you have now the platform and the voice yeah, to gosh. be able to do that. How did that happen, right? <laughs> Let's talk about how it happened. So it makes complete sense to me. Everything you've shared about your early life experience, your innate desire, almost I almost see it as a reflex to want to help others and to extend a helping hand. What led you then to decide you were going to train as a coach? Mm. I was managing various projects, UN 
funded projects in Africa and frontline projects with a lot of amazing people working with me, mostly from other parts of the world. Very academic interns, MBA students, a lot of Americans, a lot of people from parts of Europe who were then given their first jobs with the UN. Very smart, but not necessarily emotionally very resilient. Mm. And landing in the middle of Africa in the middle of a small village running a project, they really didn't cope very well, some of them. And I, I'm making an assumption here, predominantly white people. All of them. Right. All of them, except for the country teams. And some of those were then helping, assisting, but they weren't really treated the same. And it's it's a very difficult issue. With I, I think that obviously the, a lot of your organisations that I've worked with, including the UN, need to address, you know, people being paid different salaries because of where they're from as well because of, because of rec- not recognizing qualifications as well the home um, teams being paid home less teams than... being paid less wow yeah okay. and there's there's some friction definitely some friction quite right and yeah absolutely and i was aware of that and of course i was being paid the salary from an outside i guess an external expert coming in but actually when i went to get that job i went as a volunteer after the post-election violence i gave up my job i took a year off mm. i didn't want to be paid i'd saved my own money I didn't want to be influenced by the politics of the organisation. I wanted to be free to do the work that I knew I could do. You were essentially working for yourself. I was working for myself. Unpaid. Unpaid. Until I got expenses. And then I realised oh, the expenses were more than some of the salaries that people I was with. So I survived on that fine, absolutely no problem. But I then realised these young, mostly women, were needing support. And they would talk to me. They would just suddenly, you know, the end of the day would end up talking to me about what's going on or how they felt. Some of them quite emotional, some of them having their own history of difficulties and then bringing that to the work as well. And honestly felt that they needed some support. And I then built up this kind of, I don't know, reputation, people talking to me about all sorts of stuff. And of course, I'd had the counselling background with the social work. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of that. My, you know, my, my first tutor was a psychodynamic therapist. Yeah, from the Tavistock, you know, and I've I've gone on, really. I spent a whole year doing bereavement counselling with um, the Family Welfare Association. So again, I had another therapist as a, as a tutor. So I've lived with therapists around me and I've absorbed and I've learned. And I kind of took some of that into the work that I was doing with some of these women without knowing that it was actual work, but using those skills. And and then it became a weird thing happened. Somebody asked, an American person asked me, he was leading a big organisation, asked me if he could talk to me about some of the problems he was having. And I suddenly thought, whoa, hang on a second, this is a bit serious. I'm not qualified to do this. This is not what I'm doing. I'm, this isn't my job. And honestly, I said to him, I could do it, but you need to know this is what you're buying into. And he was happy to do that. And I did it and he paid me. And I was like, oh, my God, you can get paid to do this? <laughs> it was more than I was being paid for my day job per hour. So suddenly I thought, you know what, this is interesting. And then two or three other people, because he recommended them, also then contacted me. And then we had a major, major incident in in Nairobi where the shopping mall, Westgate shopping mall, was bombed. And it was awful. And lots of people were badly injured and died. And the American government then sponsored experts to come in, paid for them to come in and support the families. And I was one of them. So I then ended up doing a counselling and grief counselling support programme. That then 
I guess, made me feel, I think at that point, I needed to come home and rest. I was tired mm-hmm. and it was all a bit of a shock. And I came home and said to my husband, I can't carry on with this. It's too much. It's all too extreme. I was tired. I was getting ill, bronchitis and all sorts of things, things I'd never had before, you know, the dust, and the heat, fatigue. And of course, I'd seen some awful sights as well, you know, mm. death and yeah, not good. So I then said, I'm thinking I might try and do something else. And oddly, and I don't know how it happened, I must have looked at my computer or something happened where coaching came up. And it's sort of, I don't know whether I was Googling stuff to do. Anyway, it popped up on my computer like somebody had sent it to me. Right. Mysteriously. (laughs) It's like the world out there was aligning to say, look, you've got to stop doing what you're doing and maybe you should do coaching because you're doing a bit of it already. You know, it has a habit of doing that. Oh my gosh, it was such a weird thing. And I started Googling coaching and a programme was being offered and I just rang the number. Suddenly I found myself on a master's programme. But then, you know, I had to then say to them, you know what, I'm going to struggle with this because I don't write very well and I'm dyslexic and I need you to know this. So I had to admit something to them. So I thought it's always been a challenge for me to say that I think I've got a learning need of my own. I was going to say you used the word admit Mm. over share. Share, no, no, admit, because honestly, I never, never admitted it before. I knew I'd had a problem, but it was never assessed. Never assessed at school, never assessed when I did my first degree. So to actually stand up and say, you know what, I need you to look at this because my sister's dyslexic, my mother's probably dyslexic, my nephew is also dyslexic, and my grandson is about to be assessed as dyslexic. So we know it runs in the family. But it's just, it it was that thing about, oh, I don't want to be special, I just want to hide. Don't give me any more attention, let me just do the course, let me just get through this. And getting through it was all I needed to do. Because mm. why would I don't need to be the top student? I just want a qualification. Let me get on with what I need to know. <laughs> and for somebody who tries their best to hide, you do a pretty poor job of it. <laughs> My word. Hi, Kim. Hi, Adam. You know, I was thinking there really is no single route to arriving at the Barefoot Coach Training Program, is there? No, there isn't. People come from all walks of life from the armed forces to aromatherapy, HR to hairdressing, and teaching to taxi driving. But regardless of where they arrive from, they all share the same desire, and that is to make a change, to make a difference. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So whether people listening want to coach friends and family, coach at work, or in a new career as an accredited coach, when it comes to coach training, no two journeys are the same. You can find out where the Barefoot Line could take you by visiting barefootcoaching.co.uk. How do you use coaching in the work that you do now? What part does it play? That's a really great question. Um, I think I use, well, coaching is my, is my work. So, and it's, you know, I have several things that I do for a living. (laughs) One of them um, is primarily coaching. The second, I offer partnership support to organisations that want to invest in Africa. And I take people to Kenya primarily. And that works really well. And then the third, I think, is mostly focused around diversity work. And it's it's what I, you know, I've always done, really. And it's only in the last few years that I've actually been paid for it. So the paid work is what I concentrated on. And then basically all three is now what I make a living out of. Mm -hmm. So it's fantastic. And how do I use coaching in all of them? It's, It's interesting to think about that in a little bit more detail. I think I primarily begin by using my assessment skills, which is something I've borrowed and brought from my social work days 
And it's so integrated in the way that I am integral to me meeting people and seeing people and listening to people that I can't divorce any of it. So to be an assessor, you have to be able to do all those things right. And all of that is integral to coaching. It's a big, it's a major part of coaching. You can't do coaching without being able to assess. And I'm a pretty good assessor. And I am proud to say that I've used all of those skills for about 30 years and I'm well practiced at it. So I begin usually by doing a health and welfare check in anything that I do. So if I'm working with a group of people and we're traveling and we're going to Africa, I'll do exactly the same as I do when I begin my coaching. I'll do exactly the same when I'm working with diversity clients that that are looking at EDNI and wanting some support. I'll do that that kind of assessment in a group sense as Mm. well. So I I think that I find it difficult to separate my core abilities, if you like, when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, whether that's one person or a group of people. And I'm also doing that rounded checking where I'm assessing noise and sound and you know, dominance and subservience and all sorts of things that I have to think about when I'm working. And I also used to do it when I was a kid. So it would be me in a space. Is this a good space? Why is it not a good space? How do I feel about it? How am I made to, being made to feel about it? What am I doing with those feelings? Where am I getting them from? All that stuff comes into everything I do in mm. terms of my work. And I don't think also it ever disappears when you, you're with friends. Partly you bring some of that to relationships. Mm. It would be strange if I just put it away in a box and just got it out. I think it's part of me. It becomes part of our way of being. Yeah, it's part of me, definitely, always has been. And I can't say that there's, you know, there's many ways in which I, I can separate. What I tend to think of when I think of the coaching skills that I employ, for example, if I'm with you as a, as a client, oh my gosh, you know, I, I really have to think about what it is you're bringing to the, to the space and what you need. And what I tend to think as well is, what's the quickest way in which I can get you there? You know, your time is precious. You're really struggling with something. You need somebody to help guide you through it. And to reflect it all back to you. So yeah. I'm going to do that fairly quickly with you. <laughs> Sorry. Because honestly, it's expensive being in the, in the space. You need people to feel that they are going to get there, that they're going to find a way that is going to be comfortable for them to get to the end mm-hmm. and to solve the problem or to get to the solution. So I'm very much a goal setter. You know, sometimes I'm task orientated. Some people need that. Somebody need a little bit of a push. I'm containing Somebody said to me once that, gosh, you, you know, you're so safe to be with. I think, oh, that's, that's a nice thing to say to me because I can manage a lot of stuff as well. And I guess that's where the resilience bit comes in because you can hear quite a lot. I'm not easily phased. I've seen a lot in my life. So I, I think whenever I go into space, I can use my tone and my voice. I can comfort. I can contain. I can help. Or sometimes if I need to, I can direct. So there's so many different ways in which I use my my coaching skills. And, you know, the, the, alongside that, there's the therapeutic elements to it, you know, the sort of interactive, you know, the gestalt work that I used to do a lot of. I brought that back into, into coaching. I quite like role play sometimes as well. And I like people feeling as if they've got the control there and then to get to the end, to, to get to that solution. And not everybody's comfortable with that. So you have to really, you have to really check it. 
and make sure that people know you well enough and are comfortable enough to go there. So it's not something you offer at the beginning. It's something, you know, a few sessions down the road you might suggest. And one or two have definitely taken it on and felt more in control. What advice would you give to anybody who's listening who's considering training to become a coach? Oh, um, definitely yes. I mean, I say yes. Maybe I shouldn't say yes straight away because I think it depends on the person. And not everybody's going to be a great coach. I think we have to recognise that. Not all individuals are going to make great coaches. They might make good mentors, for example, or they might be able to do something with coaching skills. And I wouldn't say everybody would be good at everything. If, you know, I wouldn't be a good lawyer, I wouldn't be a good police officer, you know. So I don't think everybody makes a good coach. So I think it's a tricky one. I would always say that to be a good coach, you have to test it. And you've got to get on a good course. You've got to get good support. You've got to get good supervision. And you've got to practice. Mm. So there is no shortcut to being a good coach. And that's the first test really and once you survive that and you continue to practice and you continue to get good supervision and advice and training as you move along you'll know what kind of coach you want to be yeah and and that's a really interesting point as well because mm -hmm. there is no one type of coach you know we shared no. in our first episode you can sort of the age old question to niche or not to niche you can be a generalist coach or actually there are so many different avenues that you could explore and, yeah. and specialisms. You could work with children, you could work with young adults. You know, we've got alumni who are divorce coaches, yes. um, oh, wow. people who will exclusively work with teams or perhaps different, you know, particular sectors. Yeah. And definitely no one size fits all. I wouldn't say all. that I was ever thinking that I would be a particular type of coach, but I've, I've actually become a particular type of coach. Because I work with lots of different types of people, but mostly in business, mostly senior leaders and a, quite a large group of women. So, you know, when I set up Black Women Talking, an online support program for women over lockdown, it really taught me that actually there's so many other senior women working out there in leadership who are not supported, feel isolated and particularly around diversity issues, feeling even more isolated, that I then discovered that actually my leaning into not children anymore, not necessarily their families, but actually these people who are in very senior positions who've never been supported properly mm -hmm. or never had the, you know, the help that they've needed and also psychological support became something I thought, you know what, I'm really enjoying this. This is what I'm good at. And so I've carried on with it. It's, it's been fantastic. I know that coaching plays a role in the work that you do in the equity, diversity and inclusion space. You've supported many organisations over the years and have mm. long-standing relationships with some of them as either an ambassador, a yeah. patron or a trustee, to name just a few. The Woodland Trust, yeah. the RSPB, I know that nature and wildlife are two things that are really important yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, the Royal Air Force, yeah. Nottingham YMCA. You're the EDI chair for Nottingham Lieutenancy. And this year you were appointed visiting professor of resilience and inclusion at the University of Lincoln International Business School. That's quite a mouthful. In your experience, what do you think sets those organisations that are doing EDI well, apart from those that perhaps aren't so? Mm, that's a good question. And that's a quite a major answer to that, I think. Quite a few, I would say, quite a few of those organisations are on this journey of developing better EDI strategies and inclusion policies and really seriously looking at how they recruit 
to be more diverse and more inclusive in a wider sense as well than just automatically thinking this is about female, male, gender-related recruitment or diversity. It's so much wider than than the obvious. Um, these are big institutions as well. Yeah, huge institutions. And diversity meant gender diversity for most of them for a long, long time. Interesting. And then other elements around diversity then were considered at a much later time. And I think when we look at LGBT or then we look at race and ethnicity, we look at disability, you know, these are add-ons in a sense to most organisations. And a lot of them are now trying to change the way that they do work by totally changing. Culture change is really where they're focusing. Not all of them, but most of the good ones are looking at culture change. And in my view, that's what most organisations should be doing. And I think looking at, particularly when, I, when I'm when i asked to, to reflect on EDI, the people are asking me to reflect on race. And that comes in without them actually saying it, but I know that that is implied. And I, I will say, do you mean ethnic diversity? Do we, do we look at ethnic diversity as well as all the other elements of diversity and, and inclusion? And I look at how they deal with everything else before I look at ethnicity and race because I need to know a little bit more about how they've embedded, ethically embedded and culturally changed to actually work with diversity as they understand diversity. And if they've not necessarily looked at all those issues around the legal implications as well, as well as access, general access, whether that's through doors that are appropriate or ramps for disabled, those who are disabled, then I, I then wonder whether they've really looked at that properly. And if they've not worked well in those areas, how are they going to work on all the other areas? Interesting. So it's it's interesting actually thinking about that question because I really have to assess the whole organisation's approach. Yeah. And it's then looking at actually their general policies and how they've included, looking at their board and how they've included, looking at their staff and how they've included. And if they are failing, and to some extent I have to use that word now because I'm frustrated by the lack of progress, if they fail to do some of that work early on, then really they're not going to be that successful. Mm. And I don't really see how organisations can just tinker, which is the word I'm going to use, mm. around this to, to be seen to be doing the right thing but not actually really embedding yeah. diversity and inclusion really properly into their their way of being and living and breathing which is what i want them to do yes rather than of course the other end of the spectrum being paying it lip service yeah yeah no it's 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 also a matter of well-being you know i can't feel safe and well in these organizations if i don't think that they've done all those other things properly as well no. and we all need to feel safe and well and included in the work that we do on a daily basis without tripping over and feeling that actually if something goes wrong, they're not really going to care about me as much as they will mm. care about A, B or C. So if I don't feel safe and I'm pretty confident in what I say and do these days, then how are others who are less so going to feel? So again, it's that thing about how you look after people. Mm. I hope you don't mind me sharing mm. this, but you've reminded me actually of the very first conversation that we had. At the time I was in an organisation, we were having a chat about you potentially um, coming in to do some coaching work. Mm. And we had an informal, was it a Zoom think call? I, I think it was. Yeah. And one of the first questions you asked me, which I remember at the time, it floored me, was what will you do to keep me as a black woman 
in your organization safe. Mm, well, did I? You did. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And and you know I didn't have I didn't have an answer. Yeah. Because I wasn't expecting the question. You know what? That's pretty direct of me. And and I guess now I probably try and call on that as a as a direct question to a lot more organizations. Mm. Maybe you caught me on a good day because I was feeling like I needed to say something. And it maybe it followed as well not long after George Floyd was killed, actually. Yeah. And we all felt a little bit more confident in being able to stand up and protect ourselves and others. And that's where it comes from as well. And years and years and years of really trying hard to try and get organisations to see this as, as an issue. Mm. Um, well-being is not just one thing for one group of people. It's for everybody and we all need to feel it. You know, it's that thing about also talking to some organisations and wildlife organisations about walking in the woods or riding my... And I do have one bike, you know, my mountain bike. Which I didn't I, know that. I do, but I've barely used it in the last few months, I have to admit. <laughs> Not in the hills around where I live anyway. <laughs> but I, I have actually taken it quite a few times into the park, at um, Olympic Park oh. um, in East London. Because it's fairly flat and you can get not around the quite quick. I'm not in it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> How do you stand up in that? <laughs> I I, something to do with gravity. <laughs> I have no idea. Never. I'm never going to do it. The fear of falling. But you know, I've often said, you know, when I'm riding my bike out in, in sort of nature reserves or out in wild places, I worry about being out on my own. And I think a lot of women say this. But if I don't have a dog, I'm not walking a dog, and I'm walking alone. Who's going to clock me and say, oh, she's out there on her own. She might feel vulnerable. And these organisations are really trying hard to incorporate and include people of colour mm. in particular. And a lot of us are saying, well, we don't feel quite that safe in those places. So, yeah. you know, I've had to raise a few questions about safety and well-being. And it's so important that we all appreciate nature and go out there and, you know, enjoy it and feel mm. that it's okay for all of us to be in those spaces. So when I see, a, a, like I did the other day, I saw a, a young black woman jogging and she stopped and she said, hello, how are you doing? And I said, fine, it's 7.30 in the morning. She was alone and I was alone. I thought, thank God for that. Somebody else is out, right? <laughs> but it's that sense that you are safe because somebody else has seen you. Yeah. And I wanted these organisations that have wardens and um, guides walking around to actually, yeah, say hi to me and people like me and say, I hope you're all right. If you need anything, you know where we are. Yeah. Then that makes me feel okay. And also me, makes me feel that it's a place I can come back to, more importantly, yes. not just a one-off visit. And that's what I think these organisations are trying now to do a much better job at than they were two years ago even or three years ago. Yeah. It's still a journey though. It stayed with me and it's mm. also made me, re it made me reflect on you know the equivalent for myself as a as a gay man yeah um and yeah i don't really know where i'm going with this other than to say you know it's easy to sort of try to blend in it's also recognizing vulnerabilities and what you're trying to say i think is there is a vulnerability in being different in places that are not familiar to share some more of that conversation we had mm. when we explored we talked about by joining our yeah. coaching pool you're pushing yourself out there as a black woman yeah at the time the only person of color in the coaching pool yes and what true. would happen therefore if yeah well nobody chose you you yeah. know because the people typically that we're offering coaching to were white men yeah. we know there's you know endless neuroscience as to why we affiliate more with people who yeah who we who look like us 
and it, it opened up a whole new area of DEI for me. That just that one yeah. conversation, that one question, so incredibly powerful. It's interesting that almost every organisation I've worked with haven't really had that many experiences of working with black male or female coaches. Yeah, it's interesting that that's still an issue for a lot mm -hmm. of organisations, and and I'm sure I don't personally, you know, now have as many difficulties with that because I'm out there a little bit more, but. I know from speaking to lots of others and other black female coaches in particular that they will struggle to get work. You know, so it's it's a problem. You hold that flame with such grace and dignity, but also with steely determination. Mm. And I've I've tried to adopt some of that myself. So Good. Thank, thank you for offering that to me oh, all those years ago. Thank you for reminding me of it because I'd forgotten. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? You. Yeah, it's interesting what you forget and and it is about what you say, right? It's so important what you say. What you say and how you say yeah, it. Yeah, you know. And sometimes you have to be firm Yeah. and clear, uh, you know, in order to protect yourself and also to help others. You have to be firm and clear. I mentioned in the introduction that the work that you do has led you to make history, becoming the first black woman to be appointed Deputy Lieutenant for Nottinghamshire, RAF Honorary Air Commodore, and next year, you take on a new role, you make history again, as you are, I think the correct term is installed as That's High right. Sheriff of Nottingham, which sounds terribly <laughs> mechanical. <laughs> We're having a new kitchen fitted. It does sound like it, doesn't it? It does. What do, oh, what do those roles mean to you personally? Oh, gosh, they're all so different. Um, thank you for mentioning them, because they do sound a bit extreme, don't they? When you hear them out loud, when I'm doing the stuff I'm doing, I don't think about it again. You know, it's that thing about I'm doing this today and this is what I need to do and yeah. that's it. And I get on with it. What do they mean? I guess I feel honoured mostly, I have to say. I feel that it's not quite me. And I, it is a pinch me moment, really, because I think, oh, my gosh, how did she end up doing that? Would, would you have ever imagined that I'd be doing any of those things? And the answer is no. And how on earth do you get a qualification to do any of them? I'm not sure how, right? <laughs> so again, I think this has got to be about my life and the way I've done things and the people I've worked with and people I've supported. And I've never been frightened or worried about people. My life has not been one of avoiding people. So I guess I've thrown myself into situations and felt that I can do things that other people perhaps have worried about and I've thought no there is a way let me find it let me do it and doing all those different roles reveals that more and more and I if I think about the RAF role in particular which is a world that I wasn't ever familiar with before I took it on um, and you know was supported in doing it with the air chief marshal at the time the guy who basically runs the RAF for the UK mm. and the current one as well both amazing people both very dynamic but very aware that they needed to help somebody like me and they wanted me to help them and I thought no there's nothing you need from me you've got it all covered whereas in fact they they thought no the opposite to that that actually the people engagement bit the dealing with and supporting so many different types of people was something that they also wanted to do better as well yeah so the way you describe it it's almost like an exchange mm. I think it is an exchange. I mean, for me, it feels like I'm learning from them, definitely. And I've gone into it thinking this is another world that I can then also utilise and have conversations about and converse with people I wouldn't normally have access to. And that yes. thing about having access 
to certain groups of people has also been a repeat in my life. Yeah. Because through those relationships, through the access, you're yeah. able to influence in Don't, the areas that are totally, important to you. Totally. And and solve so many other problems. And that's key to what I'm doing as well. And if I didn't think I could be of use in those roles, I wouldn't do them. What do you think your grandmother would make of it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. she She'd just be absolutely blown away, completely blown away. And... Super proud. And it's strange that you ask that because only this week I got out some photographs to look at my grandmother to show my kids another image of grandmother. And it's because we're planning a trip as a big family trip in the new year to Kenya, taking everybody, which we've not done for many years, and partners and small grandchildren. And it's brought back lots of memories. So talking about the old days and what my grandmother was like and the kind of person she was. And whenever I think of going to Kenya, she's the one I think about. Even if I'm just going for a week on a job, I still think, Grandma, where are you? I wish I could see you. I wish I could tell you what I'm doing today. God, And a hugely important person in my life. I get that. I really miss her. I feel that. And isn't it funny that our conversation should lead us in that direction today? You know, Carl Jung would call it synchronicity. Well... It's amazing to me that I'm even thinking about it today. You know, my ripe old age sitting here now. And yet she lived to be 104. Did she? She did. Talk about resilient. <laughs> if anyone's going to give her a run for her money, <laughs> it will be you. I um, hope so. You have got, you've got so much going on. What or indeed who keeps you grounded? You shared the story at the beginning and you asked the, the woman in the street yeah. you know, who takes care of you. I'm interested in who takes care of you. I'm a tricky person to look after. You don't say. (laughs) I am. I am tricky to be looked after because I have to make time to be looked after. And then I have to then direct how I want it to be. (laughs) (laughs) So really you're you're, you're still working. Yeah, my poor husband will say, well, what do you want to do? And can you tell me because I don't want to get this wrong. I want this to be right for you. You know, he's so... You know, major, major, major supporter of everything I do, but at the same time knows the way I live has to be, you know, fitted into all sorts of other things. He's been, gosh, I honestly couldn't do half things I do, or any of them at all, without his backing and support. Because he then looks at me and says, what are you doing today? And I'll tell him, and he'll go, gosh, I don't know how you do it. And he often says that to me. And then I'll say, because we're going to have a week off next week. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a holiday. Um, And that's what happens. And we... We have to literally escape for me to feel like I'm not being distracted by anything else. But on a day-to-day basis, of course I have a strategy. You know, I get up, I go off walking around Gedling Country Park, which is not very far from me. Mm. Um, And I like being there early, 7 o'clock in the morning. I can be looking at the mist rising across the hills and it's just beautiful. must be tricky this time of year, though. No. No? No. No, it's all about what you wear. (laughs) (laughs) Learnings from that moment of you walking off the plane for the first time. Absolutely. It's all about what you wear. (laughs) Not a blanket, though. (laughs) No, quite. Uh, Waterproofs. Um, Yeah, so I do that. And honestly, I love social events and I love a good party. Unlike my husband, we're totally chalk and cheese. You know, I'm the sociable one. I'm the one that engages with people. So I'll go dancing without him. (laughs) It's just the way it works. And he loves a quiet night in or going to the pub 
and sport. He goes off and watches, you know, football. So we'll do those separate things and then yes. come together over meals and friends staying, which is what we do. We have lots of friends coming and going. You know, I think it's a sign to a happy marriage mm. to have the your own things that you're interested yes. in and then things that you come together and you share in together. Definitely, yeah. You, you, you can crowd a relationship. We don't do that. You know, we need we need our time out and space. And, and we, we like comedy. We like stand-up. <laughs> and you're off to a show tonight. I'm off to see Bob Dylan. Isn't that wonderful? And you see, like I say, it, it, he wouldn't have been at the top of my list. He's a fantastic person. He wouldn't have been at the top of my list, but he is at the top of my husband's list. Mm. Um, you know, he's getting on a bit, so, you know, we wanted to see him. And that's the second key to a happy marriage, compromise. Yes. Oh, my word. Yes. Where can people listening find out more about you? You know, I don't say very much about myself. And and I guess that's something about living in a fairly contained, private, confidential world for most of my career. Mm. And so I've struggled with the idea of saying too much. And because of the jobs I do, that you know, some of that is a bit private. But now, over the last few years, I've decided that I can be out there a little mm. bit more. And so I've got a little website, so you can get, catch me on my website. You can Google me, you can find me. You'll easily find me, frankly, now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I seem to be doing one or two interviews and people say things about me online. So yes. I don't often put anything out about myself, but you'll find me easily. Yeah. VeronicaPickering.co.uk. That's me. And you're on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Again, you can get me anywhere you want me. There I am. As a way of bringing our conversation to a close, then what's the question or thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with? What can you do next? That's my thought. There's something you can do next that will change your life. And you can think about that a little bit more. And it's something that is reachable. So what can you do next? Don't sit back, don't wait, plan it and do it. I'm an action-orientated person. I think lots of people need to just get on with it instead of worrying, worrying and worrying about it. And you can help yourself. And if you can't do it by yourself, then get somebody to help you do it. That's my question is what can you do next? Or call V and she'll know someone. <laughs> I'll definitely know somebody. <laughs> if I don't, somebody else will know. Veronica Pickering, thank you so much. No, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Adam. The only thing that's missing is a glass of wine. Well, you know, I wanted to say that, you know, usually when we have these conversations, there's some glorious food between us. <laughs> what happened? I know. <laughs> Grapes. Yes, yes. Yeah, we went for the healthy oh, option. Perhaps dear. next time. Yeah, well, there'll be a next time. Definitely it'll be in a pub. <laughs> Quite right. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then be sure to subscribe to get alerts each time we release a new episode. Just search Barefoot Coaching Podcast wherever you get yours. Oh, and if you aren't already following us on social media, then do just search for Barefoot Coaching.